You've eaten Gotham's wealth, its spirit, but your feast is nearly over. This is not my home. It's an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. Why aren't you laughing? From this moment on, none of you are safe. Welcome to the Batman Book Club, a podcast exploring the Dark Knight Library. I am your host, Ryan Lauer. The Batman Book Club is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network, hosted by Batman on Film. Just go to batmanonfilm.com, click on podcasts, and you'll find the Batman Podcast Network. That has a whole list of other Bat-related shows that also like to dive into some other nerdy subjects that we all love to frolic about in our free time. And if you like what's going on with the show and you want to help support the show, just go to patreon.com slash Batman VC. Now, thank you for listening to episode 166, Night of the Stalker. Joining me uh, is, I just mentioned Batman on film. It's the editor-in-chief of Batman on film. Um, also, maybe better known as the gumbo guru of Texas, uh, <laughs> Bill Jet Ramey. Bill, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for, thanks for having me on, especially with your special guest here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, i I would not have this special guest if uh, if it wasn't for you. So thanks for coming on. And then obviously, thanks for um, reeling in this special guest. I mean, how can I even I mean, five minute introduction? But I mean, he's a comic book writer. He's a comic book enthusiast. He's a film producer, TV producer, but maybe best known as Batman's Batman. Um, honored to have Mr. Michael Euston on the show. Michael, thanks for agreeing to come on the Batman Book Club. Happy to be here. I'm here with one of my friends who, you know, always still, you know, just loves to get, get, get to oh, oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> so, my goodness. So is that your travel buddy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I do is when I have to go into the um, uh, the fast lanes on the highway, I just prop them up in the seat next to me and nobody bothers us. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, well, it looked familiar as the, you know, the years were coming up, but then, I mean, then I realized what that was really from. That was, that was some good at 89 headgear. Ah, yeah, lovely. Exactly. I want one. <laughs> uh, this is your first time on the show. Uh, anybody who's on for the first time, I always have to ask them, even though I could answer this. I, I mean, it's, it's your answer, but what is your favorite Batman story? There's no question about it. Absolutely no question about it. Mm -hmm. It's Night of the Stalker from Detective yeah. Comics number 439, um, which was doubly interesting to me because it was during that moment in time when Detective Comics was 100 freaking pages uh, in wow. the DC Super Specs. And uh, you got an array of Golden Age reprints in there, uh, Archie Goodwin's um, uh, Walt Simonson Mad uh, Manhunter uh, as a backup. It, it was a great time for Batman. Um, when Archie Goodwin was an editor and you had people like Denny O'Neill and Steve Englehart and Len Wein um, as some of the primary writers. And of course, you had some of the greatest artists that contributed so much to the return of Batman to his darker roots, to his darkness and integrity, uh, courtesy of Irv Novick and, mm -hmm. Lee, and um, Neil Adams and Jim Aparo in particular. Listen and to those names. Listen to those names. <laughs> such a great time to be a Batman fan. It really was. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, when I'm looking at the cover here, I'm not seeing about how much were these 100-page issues running for at the time. 50 cents. 50 cents. Then they, then they went up to a traumatic 60 cents. Oh, my gosh. Breaking and banks. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that was not pleasant. That was not pleasant at all. But man, did we get banged for our buck back then? Sure, uh, we we truly, yeah. truly did. You know, and and you never knew who was going to pop up in an issue, whether it was uh, Mike Golden or uh, Marshall Rogers. Um, there, there were just there. It was just a great array of talent with mm -hmm. everybody wanting to uh, get their finger on Batman one way or another. Of course, we all understand that. Like, who who doesn't? <laughs> Especially these days. Uh, well, that's perfect. I mean, a perfect segue into like what the the topic of this episode then is let's get to talking about Night of the Stalker. You already mentioned, yeah, it was Detective Comics number 439. 
released in 1974. The credits here are it's a little different than usually it's written by an artist or illustrated. You read, by the way. Now go on. Yeah. The um, I mean, that's why with it being a little different, it said I'm gonna read exactly from the page one where it says script by Steve Englehart, plot and pencils by Vin and Sal Amendola from or sorry inks by dick giordano and editing by archie goodwin from an incident as described by neil adams and i just kind of feel that um professor uselin is going to give us some insight behind um all of those goods <laughs> so i do not want to take anything away from anybody sure so i will simply tell you that in my private discussions with neil adams about this issue in particular uh, making sure he understood that this was my favorite Batman story in history. Um, and Neil was very focused and adamant as to the extent of his involvement in this story. And if you look at the artwork, mm -hmm. page by page, panel by panel, undeniably, you see Neil Adams all over the place. And, and um, he he may have uh, well in, indeed suggested this story and then Steve Englehart did a phenomenal job in the writing of the story. I always felt the writing of this story, it had just enough of poetic um, essence to it. It, mm -hmm. it. it was often when you read the captions, it's often like reading poetry, but it also has just enough of the purple prose of pulp magazines like The Shadow that helped set the scene and drag you back into the world of comic books at the time. Um, the most important element of this whole thing, and when I tell people about this story, it's the one that leaves their eyes popping. This to me is the most emotional Batman story mm. I've ever read. And in this story, Batman does not say one word. And that's kind of what makes it so incredible. Mm -hmm. I, you even mentioned with, um, you know, I mean, I just said the scripting was Steve Englehart and you commented on his writing too, that even on Steve Englehart's website, he's even written about how he, I think it was addressed to him of the story's not going to have writing. He's like, so of course I had to write uh, dialogue and all of it, except for he wanted the, like the, in, the final page, that dialogue he wanted, or not dialogue, but uh you know I mean, that, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. That at least like that part uh, stayed in. Uh, before more of those details, I mean, obviously it was released, like I said, in 1974, a physical issue. It's available anywhere digitally. Uh, it's been collected in Batman Greatest Stories Ever Told Volume 1, as well as a Tales of the Batman Steve Englehart hardcover that came out a few years ago. Um, that book is available on my favorite app of all time, Hoopla, the digital library, and the issues available on DC Universe and Finite. So for our discussion, um, for each of you, let's go to you first, Bill. What version did you read in prep for this? I read a digital version. Mm -hmm. I have the physical copy that I bought as a kid. I was nine years old. Um, this one has the cover on it still, unlike Batman 251, which <laughs> that cover was gone year long Been ago. Used. But I do have the book. I read, you know, read and read, read that book. Yeah. Uh, but I've got it stored away i mm -hmm. thought i had it uh loose but i didn't i was it was another one so instead of me going digging it up i just read the digital version at first i thought it's got to be in isn't it in the uh, detective comics you know the anniversary the new the newest one uh that came out and it is not so mm, okay i read the digital i did not read it in hand i have to say so don't take my batman card away please <laughs> No, never. I know that for just single issues, especially older ones, single issues, it's always hard to track down exactly what all reprints of things that it's showed up in. So recently that I've found is are those two um, collections. How about you, uh, Michael? Where, what version did you read? The one that came out on the stands in 1974 that Wednesday. There you go. <laughs> uh, now I, I, I got to ask you because I didn't look this one up. Sure. I'm guessing, this is just a guess now, that the colorist was Tatiana Wood, but I would love to know for sure who colored it, because that also um, is part of the mix that makes this work so incredibly well in terms of graphic storytelling. Um, um, 
not let's see i think it's like dc fandom.com that does a lot of really great stuff and they do credit so they they list as oh it says okay so according to them cover artist neil adams dick giordano tatiana wood and gasper saladino and then they credit on colorist jerry serp for serpe jerry serpe serpe there we go okay jerry colored the story that's I mean, interesting. According to them, yeah, there you go. All right. Um, Jerry was an excellent, excellent, excellent DC colorist. Tatiana was the queen. Yeah. She was the one every artist would ask for first. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was busy, busy, busy all the time. She was married to Wally Wood uh, for a period of time. And uh, an amazing, amazing, talented lady. Nice to know she did the cover. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but but Jerry was uh, Jerry was terrific and a, and a, and a good human being. Um, I'm challenged as to how we talk about this without spoiling it in terms of the last page of the story. So I'm going to have to take my cues from you guys okay. as to if we need to avoid that or if we can do a spoiler alert and at some point in time discuss that. Uh, I've, I've got two more, uh, kind of intro questions and then we'll, then we'll just spoil everything about this. Uh, I mean, also the story is coming up on 50 years, 39 years or not 49 years old this year or so. So, I mean, I mean, uh, we can spoil it like crazy, but for me, I, I was not able to get my tales of the Batman Steve Englehart hardcover out of my storage. So I also had to go digital, which is okay, but I love physical. And I entertained myself actually at the comic shop yesterday. And I wondered, maybe let's just see how much this physical guy goes for. And they they only wanted $140 for this issue physically. So I didn't pull the plug. Um, right. I'm just sticking sticking digital. But I'm maybe, maybe someday, because Englehart's one of my favorite Batman writers. And then, of course, this, I think this is such an iconic um, cover, you know, with the the people that I just mentioned, especially Neil Adams um, and the story itself that I don't know, maybe someday. Uh, do you remember when you first read this story? Sure. I think you kind of just answered it. Yeah, I remember yeah. distinctly like it was yesterday. The day that it came out. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Bill? I was a kid, you know, you were a kid. I told yeah. the story excuse me you know i would go to uh, as a kid i would go you know i was like nine okay mm-hmm. eight or nine depending on when it came out what month um i would go to the corner store and they had the old spinner racks with with comics and i would you know pick some out and that's that's where i got this one and um you know i just kept it around for years you know back in those i didn't think about as a, a single digit bill mm-hmm. in age i didn't think about you know backboarding comics and putting them in a in a bag i just i just kept them around and read them and would reread them so yeah it's because you're a little bit about my age but yeah I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was a kid though but i did read yeah. it you know when it came out i don't you know um i don't know how long it had been in there or but i yeah probably but it was probably 1974 i don't think it was lasting you know was it five years later and I picked it up, but it's by chance it's been sitting there now. So, you know, one thing I, I want to throw out and it's something you couldn't possibly have been aware of as a little kid. Uh, I was a little bit older than that when it came out, <laughs> I was 23 or just about to turn 23. And so the evolution of Batman back to the dark era was significant and important. And uh, I was working at DC at that time. We, I was part of the Junior Woodchucks, uh, which was the next generation um, of it was the first time they brought fans into the company to train to become the next generation of professionals at DC. Wow. And uh, that was me, Paul Levitz, Bob Rosakis, Jack C. Harris, Anthony Tollin, um, Carl Gafford, Alan Asherman, Steve Mitchell. Uh, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. Um, but we were the woodchucks and we were the kids on the block, the new kids on the block. And so I was there and this was all happening at a critical behind the scenes moment in time when Julie Schwartz, who to me was the greatest DC editor who had ever lived 
And just for a little background to some of the listeners, Julie Schwartz is responsible for the Silver Age Flash and Green Lantern and Hmm. Adam and Hawkman and Justice League. Julie Schwartz is responsible for returning Batman to his darker roots. And at this moment in time, Julie, who had started with the new look Batman in 1964, Detective Comics 327, and I think it was Batman 161 or 162, um, Julie had just turned over the reins of Detective Comics to Archie Goodwin. This was a major transition moment. This is a generational transitional moment at DC. And it was at the same era where Neil Adams was reinventing the dynamics of comic book covers and graphic storytelling. And then you had Nick Carty following his his lead and Jim Aparo and so many other people under Dick Giordano, Denny O'Neill, uh, uh, Joe Orlando, um, Joe Kubert was taking over the war line from Bob Kaniger. And you had this move editorially from a writer being the editor to an artist being the editor. This was a huge, huge transition time over at DC. And Archie was up to the challenge. And his issues of uh, Detective, which I remember predominantly being the 100-page super specs, but it started before then. Um, And just by having Manhunter as the backup, Mm -hmm. uh, it just elevated it. It made it pre-graphic novel, graphic novel feeling that as a 23-year-old college or actually law school student, I could read these Batman comics that were being churned out by Denny and Steve and, and everybody and feel that they were growing up with me. And the graphic storytelling was becoming more and more mature, more and more sophisticated. And it was an incredibly exciting era Uh, especially when a gem like this would show up. And it was the same feeling I had when the Marshall Rogers, Steve Englehart issues began to show up and explore the the darkly romantic side of Batman with Silver Sand Cloud, Mm -hmm. the evil of Rupert Thorne and about gangs in and operating in Gotham City. Um, That that was pretty cool, culminating for me in, I think it was a two-parter, The Laughing Fish, which was the Englehart Rogers interpretation of Joker, which was magnificent. From the later named Strange Apparitions, which is one of my favorite. I mean, I counted all as one story because when I first read those, it was in the Strange Apparitions trade. And so I just count it as one story. It's called Strange Apparitions to me. And I like I love, I love that run wholeheartedly, which is what made me, you know, Englehart one of my favorite Batman writers, is because of that um era right there. It's a bit of a roundabout way in how I first read this. Uh, It was about 2007, in which I think that's around then is when I got the Strange Apparitions trade, but then uh, collection. But then they also released a hardcover called Batman Ego and Other Tales by Darwin Cook. And I was just starting to, you know, uh, I was in college. I started to have money. So I would go to the comic shop and buy anything Batman I could. And I read a story in there called Deja Vu. Um. I'm trying to think exactly. It might have said inspired by or based by, based on a story by Steve Englehart. Um, and I was like, this is interesting. What is what's this? Because I recognize the name of Englehart because of strange apparitions. Let's see. It said based on the 70s classic Night of the Stalker by Steve Englehart, Vin and Sal Amendola and Dick Giordano. So I then. Because in 2007, it wasn't so accessible to get 70s comics. So then I think by. By way of the internet, um, I was able to find this Night of the Stalker and realize, like, oh, Deja Vu is an updated version, Darwin Cook's version of Night of the Stalker. And then I was just like, wowed by then. So it's one of those things if I was in my 20s when I finally read it and it was 30 years later, but it's like at least at least I, I finally got my hands on something that I was then finding out is such a deemed such a classic Batman tale such a, a classic Batman story. And then, and then that just spread into more seventies stories that I finally got to sink my teeth into and gain such an appreciation for that time period. 
and Batman well, I have, comics. I have to tell you, I always believed in the back of my mind that my second favorite Batman story of all time was part of this thing. And it was Night of the Reaper. Mm, mm-hmm. So you had Night of the Stalker, Night of the Reaper. That's connective tissue just in the titles alone. But in, again, in terms of emotional impact and the fact of Batman dealing with Nazis and World War II and the Holocaust um, before Marvel's X-Men or, you know, and Magneto got into this whole thing, this was pretty daring grown-up stuff this was no longer a dc war comic of buddha 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 as you're shooting mm-hmm. the nazis um th- this had elevated to a to a whole different plane and again i would suggest to anyone if you're going to read night of the stalker follow it up with night of the reaper it it, it is intense and it's powerful and it's an important story and if by some chance whoever's listening hasn't read that, I guarantee they know the cover. I guarantee they know that cover for sure. <laughs> Great cover. Um, Michael, this was all up to you. I put it on you of what you would like to talk about on here. Why did you choose? And I, this may seem obvious at this point, but why did you choose Night of the Stalker? All right. So we got to put up the spoiler alerts here. Spoiler folks. alert. All right. There you go. Ser- seriously. You don't want to listen to what I'm about to say if you have not read it yet. <laughs> and now let's give them five seconds to hang up. Okay. All right, here it comes. Marin. So um, besides the dynamic art and the incredible picturesque, poetic-like storytelling, um, I mentioned before, in this entire story, which I consider to be the most emotional Batman story ever told. Batman does not say a word. He does not have a word balloon or a thought balloon. Nothing. Mm -hmm. He's totally silent. His actions and reactions speak volumes. It's deafening. And it culminates. Well, let me go back. It starts with Batman observing a couple and their young son being confronted by gangsters in the Mm -hmm. streets of Gotham city. Kind of eerily reminiscent of something to Batman. And he is unable to stop what transpires next, which to his utter horror is a replay of what happened to him and his parents. And what that unleashes emotionally, what that reawakens inside of Batman Bruce's brain and heart and soul drives him forward in the most intense manner I have ever seen Batman depicted as an unstoppable dark force of good, of of retribution. And then when this nightmarish scenario finally comes to an end over this long night of the stalker, he gets back to Wayne Manor and he looks at his parents' portrait and his cowl is down. And I think the final caption is, and he is that boy once again And for the first and only time that I know of in 85 years of Batman comics, he breaks down and cries. Mm -hmm. Mm. I mean, you know, (laughs) it just took it to a whole other level. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I always talk about how, you know, I started reading comics when I was little and Superman was the first superhero I grafted onto because he was friendly. He was on TV every day. I knew Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White. Um, It it was all friendly reading, light, bright. And um, Batman, I had to wait till I was like a much more sophisticated seven before I really, you know. (laughs) You had the world figured out by then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and I could figure out, oh, okay, this this is cool. This is not too scary. Yeah. Um, But... You know, I, I started with 
with that approach. And ultimately, Batman, with this story, became real because it reawakened in me the feelings I had when I first read the origin of Batman comics when I was a kid. Now, at age eight or seven, whatever I was when I read it, and it was probably in a reprint, um, I had never once had the thought enter my brain that one day my parents would die, mm -hmm. that one day they would not be here. And to read this origin story as a little kid of a kid who's watching his parents murdered in the street in front of him and him, you know, in the lamplight uh, over their bodies making this vow, that was gut-punching um, emotion that's hard to, you, you'll never, you never forget it. I mean, it, it alters your consciousness as a kid, just reading about this happening and then identifying with young Bruce Wayne. So now all these years later, I'm 23 and I'm reading and he's breaking down and crying. And just like I related to Bruce when I was seven or eight, when it happened, I'm now relating to Bruce breaking down into tears over his long gone parents. It, it, it was like at that moment, Batman became real to me. Yeah. That I knew we were both growing up together and we were on a journey together. And I did not know it would wind up being not only my career, but my entire life in, you know, in retrospect, but what an amazing journey. And, and those were flashpoint moments for me with Batman at two different, completely different times of my life. Wow. Uh, I mean, my <laughs> way, like the earlier thing you saw, that was about the non-dialogue. Um, Bill, since Michael and I both experienced this issue for the first time as, you know, mm -hmm. I guess as adults in our twenties, can you remember as far back as like when you first read this as a kid, how certain aspects so first of all one thing of like hey batman doesn't talk at all in this second kind of what michael just said too of like you're getting your hero that you have put on a pedestal and that you cherish and then you're seeing the humanity behind him as he removes the cow and he actually turns and he's crying for that can you remember how like multiple things were hitting you as a as a kid it probably probably not i don't recall like first the first time I read it and sure. how it impacted me. Um, I just remember like reading it and then reading, you know, the prior year reading uh, the Joker's five way revenge. And a lot of the comics that were coming out at that time, it was not, it was not the Batman of the sixties TV series, which, which was my, was my gateway into Batman, you know? Yeah. And that it was that period with those comics and and Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill and others uh, with the dark Batman that really form my my sensibilities mm -hmm. that makes sense of what what yeah. what Batman is to me uh, and so it was like later on reading as a, being a little bit older that the 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 impact of the story and just you know noticing. Batman doesn't say anything in, in this, you know, and then rereading it for this podcast. I was, um, I was taken by the, the, the dialogue of kind of the narration, right. You know, where it's, it really points out this, how Batman is a dark creature. It, you know, it, he is the dread, the strange mm -hmm. night, dark night nemesis of evil um uh creature of hell you know descriptions like that it just uh stood out to me again of how especially when you take in context of the the period it came out in 1974 mm -hmm. it wasn't that long ago that batman in the comics was a lot different you know what five six years before that before uh 1969 rolled around and they sent robin off to 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 college right mm -hmm. and he moved you know shut down the bat cave and all that um so 
Yeah. I mean, it just impacted me because it, it's those stories. And, 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 and you know, this is one, it's one of my favorites, along with uh, Joker's Five-Hour Revenge, form my Batman. What's Batman to me in my head and my heart, if that, if that makes any sense. You know, I actually remember having uh, discussions at the comic book shop in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, where I got this. And um, it, it was Wednesday and a number of the fans were there. And um, I, it was incredible to me that when we went back the next week after it had been out and I saw a lot of these people and we started to talk about it, probably, I want to say maybe half of them did not catch. We're not even aware that Batman had no dialogue at all in the story. <laughs> they had to like go back and look at that. It didn't yeah. hit them that that was the case. That's pretty amazing too. For sure. But I'd like to know, Michael, can I ask Michael a question, Brian? You don't. Uh, that, right? Fine. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what was, there's a lot of times you, when like um, the people who say, oh, Batman, you know, Batman for Batman 89 wasn't, that big of a deal and i'm like you weren't there you you weren't around if you weren't around you don't understand you know you don't um what comics like this was there a big like saying you went to the comic book shop was there like a big um uh, uh, what was the reaction you know by people who had read it and you go in and discuss it was it like a big was deal there a buzz? story yeah buzz uh because it was a different time, it, right? It, uh, yeah, it, I wouldn't call it a big buzz. Um, there was so much going on at that time in comics, of both Marvel, DC, and other places. Um, it was all in a transformative state. So um, Batman was not yet the focal, focal, focal point. It became beginning in 1989. Everything changed. Back then... We had Batman appeared every month in Detective Comics, Batman Comics, World's Finest with Superman, Brave and Bold Team Up, and here and there, Justice League. That was it. I think the last time I looked, a couple of months ago, there were 31 Batman-related titles out in a month. <laughs> so this was a very, very different time. Um, there were more Superman titles than there were Batman titles. And, um, but everything was changing. Everything was changing. So, but you, you mentioned Batman 89 and I have to bring this up. Um, this story has been around. You've heard me tell it numerous times. It's in my book. Um, our lives changed in terms of trying to bring Batman to the silver screen in 1986 when Tim Burton came aboard. And I got a call from um, the studio exec over there at the time. And they said, we want, we got this kid <laughs> and he's at a Disney animation. Um, he's just done this amazing movie for us. We want you to see it. We'll screen the fine cut of Pee Wee's Big Adventure for you. Wow. So I went over to the studio, watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And they said, let us know what you think. And I said, my God, I have never seen such a creative combination of direction and art direction in my life. I would love to meet this guy. So the studio set up three lunches uh, between me and Tim. My job in the first lunch was number one, to indoctrinate him into the world of Batman, which I didn't know how much he had already, you know, knew. I was guessing, well, coming out of Disney animation, he must be totally into comic books. And I was blown away that he wasn't and that he really wasn't familiar with Batman, with much Batman. So job number one, indoctrinate him into that world. And job number two, equally, if not more important, keep him away from all the silly crap. So I was the filter. <laughs> and made sure that he never saw the super Batman of Planet X, Bat Genie, um, Robot Batman, um, Rainbow Batman, uh, Batman this, Batman that. That might. <laughs> what I gave him as source material from my collection were um, reprints 
of Detective Comics 27 through 38, which covered Batman's solo career to the introduction of Robin. I gave him Batman number one, which introduces Joker and Catwoman. I gave him the Denny O'Neill, Irv Novick, uh, Neil Adams issues of Batman Detective Comics, mostly Detective Comics, that was out at that time. And I gave him the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run with Silver St. Cloud. And then I gave him Night of the Stalker. That was the bundle that I used to indoctrinate Tim mm. into the world of Batman. By the time our third lunch was done, I was absolutely sure this was the guy. Um, and uh, and I could go on and on about what he did. He is the one individually responsible for what I always call the big idea that would change Batman, change the comic book industry, change the movie industry, change Hollywood forever, and open up the door to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that was simply, and I don't want to get too off track here, so I'm just going to mention it without going into detail, was simply when he said, if we are going to make the first revolutionary, dark and serious comic book superhero movie ever, this movie cannot be about Batman. This movie must be about Bruce Wayne. And that has changed everything. And I, I don't know how many times I talked to Stan Lee about this. Stan said, absolutely, that's what opened the door. That's why Iron Man movies should really be called Tony Stark. And that's why Spider-Man movies should really be called Peter Parker. It all goes back to Tim's big idea. So did his reading of this initial material have an impact? Um, in my humble opinion, yeah. of course it did. Look at the opening of Batman 1989. It's Night of the Stalker. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So you want to talk about an impact that an individual <laughs> comic story can have, which is why you should go rush out right now and grab that damn issue for 140 bucks and put it away somewhere. <laughs> All right. Stand, stand by. I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> it was instrumental I, in Batman 89. You know, I've I've read your books. I talked to you even about uh, Batman's Batman. But I don't remember specifics on the night of the stalker part and you connecting that i don't know why like an aha moment now of yeah i mean i just went back even further oh yeah 89 the opening of that as a kid i did think that's oh my gosh this is the wayne murders and then oh no it's not i never thought of like putting it together of like oh yeah this is just like night of the stalker the batman he's seeing this happen and it's oh my god ta-da yeah i'm late to the game but at least i showed up (laughs) <laughs> now, I'll give you one other comic book that you Please might do. want to get your hands on. Something I wrote. It was for Dynamite. It's The Shadow Number 100. Mm. And Nikki Barucci at Dynamite asked me if I would do a special story for that issue. And in that story, um, The Shadow confronts Orson Welles and, and gives him a piece of his mind in terms of what he is doing on the radio. But there's also an incident that the shadow witnesses of a young boy and his parents being accosted in an alleyway. Mm. And all of a sudden, without naming names, if you go back and read shadow number 100 story that I did, it will augment um, anytime you read the story of Bruce Wayne and his parents. Mm. Crazy. How about that? <laughs> How about them apples? Um, Bill, something that you asked when you were asking Michael about like the buzz in uh, Michael, you said that it seemed that it, some people didn't believe that Batman didn't have any dialogue. I think that adds to the fact that I think this issue and there's just something about that era of comics, I think for sure of they have such like value in revisiting because I think initially in reading it because Batman's not talking you do kind of go through it fast and it is very much i think the pacing is very fast of like oh my gosh batman's going after these guys and and all that but then you go back and it's like if you take your time take a breath and really just kind of settle into the atmosphere of it all and then now really start to drink in the art and then you do pick up on batman doesn't talk but him becoming this creature of the night and how that is drawn so well and inked well and colored well of of these shots even and like my my favorite one of it and i it's 
Darwin Cook's version has one of my favorite Batman panels ever, and it's mocked from this of when Batman's crouched on those rocks after the the criminals get out of the car and look at him. He's crouched on the rocks. Darwin Cook did it where they did that, but he's on a tree. And I, I think the coloring of it is just awesome. It's a purple background and everything. But you have that. You have Batman when he's shaking the keys and drops some. And then he's just, he's mostly in silhouette, a little bit of blue, but then you you can't see a face. And, you know, and the symbols in black and stuff. And I'm like, just drinking in that art alone is like, oh my gosh, that's Batman. There doesn't need to be dialogue at all because you get the point just going panel to panel and just seeing even whether he's doing something like the the water fight. Um, uh, now you hit it. That, there we that's go. my favorite panel. Neil's yep. drawing of Batman underwater, pulling the guy face oh to my face gosh. underwater. That yep. was my, aside from the last panel, that mm-hmm. was my favorite panel of the whole piece. I also love the one that had his whole bat cape unfolded where you saw him as if almost he was in flight in that one panel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know I usually hit all these up towards the end, but I just said mine. Michael just said his. Bill, what's your favorite panel of the issue? <laughs> he just took it from me. He I just posted did it? it on Twitter right. or X, just that picture. It's Batman pulling the, the guy down in the water. And, and like, just before that, you know, the the... You know, he is like, I did it. You know, I got rid of Batman, basically. And, and it's the just hands Batman. Up. Yeah, I I, I I, love it. And love it is, it. it's, it's it, oh, go ahead, Michael. There's another panel. I Don't ask me which Batman issue it's from. I don't remember. But it was, again, one of my favorite of all time is a Neil Adams looming figure of Batman after the guy's been talking his mouth off and turn around and Batman goes, boo. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I can see it. I can't remember. I can't remember what it's from, but that is one of my all-time favorite Batman panels as well. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, it strengthens the the water issue underwater, which, granted, he's underwater. But in seeing those panels, just, like, anybody challenge me of a word balloon that needs to be there and a word that Batman needs to say. It's like, I don't it's justified that there's nothing it's just, it says everything you need to hear and more by saying nothing just the images itself i mean great <laughs> just great yeah and i mean especially with the i mean when you get after the the murder and you get i mean just the tone of when you're like when batman's having the flashback of the wayne murders the coloring of that and the the tone of it all and i mean even the nod of as Joe chills running away and little Bruce is standing there with his hands up, but you look at the shadow and what it creates on the wall, you know, it's, I don't think it's forced. I think it is subtle because I mean, I don't remember reading this until this time as I'm drinking everything in and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that like, that's Batman in his shadow and stuff too. Um, I mean, I just think like the art beginning to end of I mean, it, it's, it's just so good. So, by something being so good, of course, you could probably say, well, then Neil Adams probably did it. But um, I know there are other credits on here as well. Um, do you have. What I want to say, is there more context behind the art that either of you know that you can share aside from just like who's on the credit on the first page? Oh, that's that's Mr. You question right there. Okay. Yeah, you know, um, again, I, I am cautious because sure. I don't want to take anything away from Sal um, or or Dick and his, the, the yanking that he did. I can only go by looking in Neil's face. <laughs> <laughs> from the man himself. <laughs> and, and Neil being very adamant about the extent to which he is pervasive in this particular story. So... Um, uh, I, I honor him by passing that along, um, but not making a comment as to who specifically drew what or inspired what or laid out what, um, I, I will, I will leave that to, uh, to history. I was in looking some things up for this issue specifically and, you know, typing in night of the stalker and Neil Adams just to see if there was some context, because that did get me of from an incident described by Neil Adams. And as we know, with all sorts of terminology, when it comes to credits of every single word counts, 
And so that's very carefully worded. And I did come across, I think it was on the comic book resources where they, uh, a writer had talked to Sal Amendola in which he referenced, and this is as much as I can remember is pretty broad about Neil Adams shared this idea of a water fight of in which now we just kind of referenced it of Batman pulling the guy under and everything. But that was, I couldn't find anything more in depth than that to go on so that it's like, Oh yeah, this source says this and this one says this. So it's still, I mean, uh, I'm always a student. I tell Bill this all the time. I'm always a student. I'm always learning. I don't know. I don't know at all. Um, That's as much context as I could find on it. That has been, written and so exactly you, you won't and, and and i'll give you one other st- unrelated story but it kind of adds up to the same thing i was close with will eisner spent a lot of time with will and we were at a comic-con don't ask me if it was san diego or new york we were sitting together and it was a panel with some of the old time artists on it now back in the 70s i did a book for simon and schuster fireside called america at war the best of dc war comics and in that, I reprinted the very first Blackhawk story from Military Comics number one. And to prepare for it, I did a lot of work. I talked to so many old timers to try to get a sense of who created Blackhawk or who was involved in the creative process of Blackhawk. And there were numerous people. Um, there was Will, there was Chuck Quadera, there was Bill Woolfolk. Uh, and others. Um, But it was always clear from both the artwork, analyzing the artwork itself and from my discussions with Will, Will had created Blackhawk. And then Chuck and Bill Wolfolk and others, Bob Powell, ultimately, they they got involved right from the beginning. And we were at this panel and Chuck Quadero was up there. And he was... um, it, it, it was quite a loud rant about that he had solely created Blackhawk and other people, i.e. Will Eisner, mm-hmm. were uh, should not be credited for it. Uh, this was mine. Uh, that's why I named Chuck Chuck. Um, and I'm sitting there listening to this rant and I'm with Will. I said, Will, I said, I've researched this for mm-hmm. this book. I talked to so many people. This just is not the way it was. I said, you created Blackhawk. I said, if you're not going to stand up and say something now, I will. And he said to me, don't. He goes, I've accomplished a lot of things in my life. I've done a lot of things in my life. This is his one thing. Let him have it. (laughs) And um, that was Will's reaction to it. It's wow. like, I don't need you to set the historic uh, uh, record straight. Let him, let him have his mom. Let him have it. And, um, and and I think that that's probably a little bit of what Neil and, and other people, you know, might feel in the same set of circumstances. So, again, taking nothing away from Sal, nothing away from Steve at all, or Dick or anybody. Mm-hmm. This, this is a good place look for yourself, look at it yourself and see what you believe is an influence that can be seen with your two eyes of, uh, of Neil Adams, whether in a pose, in a concept, uh, in a drawing, and, mm-hmm. and everybody can decide for themselves. An interesting mind to pick on this. Um, I guess I could say all three of our mutual friend, Peter Vera, who, uh, Michael, he's been in your house to interview you for Batman on yeah. film, even, um, uh, like he, he, he lives and breathes for Neil Adams. And we, I actually talked to him on the phone last night, even, and we were talking about Neil Adams and, uh, yeah, I, I would, there's somebody to pick our brain or to pick his brain bill. Pete, what do you think? <laughs> you were close yeah, to Neil Adams. There you go. What do you think? <laughs> um, let me go ahead and ask you then, I mean, each of you of like, what's your favorite part of the issue? Go ahead, Bill. We'll go with you first. Well, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's the 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 jiggling of the keys. The keys? Yeah. Nice. It's just um it's very Batman. You know, they couldn't find him. Didn't know where he was. And then he's just right there and he's taking their 
taking the keys away from them. And it's all, you know, it's like almost like come and get it. I just, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what came to mind. My first, you would think it, it would be the, the ending, but it was that, that really, it really uh, stood out, stood out to me. Sure. How about you, Michael? It's the dichotomy in this virtually short story of Batman, mm-hmm. the Batman, as a relentless force of nature, relentless, driven, almost feels supernatural in terms of he can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And you've got this Batman, pure Batman, inspired by the shadow. The shadow had a lot of the same um, feeling as almost a force of nature to him. And then it ends with the emotional Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne and the humanity of it. So it's force, 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 breakdown. That juxtaposition is incredible. That's what makes the last page pay off so much. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's stories uh, like this that I'm sorry, Brian. No, no, no. Uh, go for it. Yeah, I just want to say it, it every time I read these issues from the 70s, it makes me long for the days where you could just go pick up a single issue and read a Batman story from begin that has a beginning, middle, and end. And you don't have to read, you know, for months and months and months, crossovers and whatnot. I wish there was more of that in comics. Um, I mean, I built, I so totally agree with you. Think of um, Danny O'Neill's crime alley story. Mm -hmm. Another impactful emotional story told, told and done in one Um, demon of Gothos Manor. Uh, mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, Robin dies at dawn. It was a mm-hmm. three-part story that as, as an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old was tremendously emotional for me. Uh, Night of the Reaper we mentioned, um, but here's another one. Let's let's jump out of the box for a second and go over to Murray Boltonoff over at Brave and Bold. Read individually the first three Batman Dead Man team-ups. By mm-hmm. Bob Haney, Haney and uh, Jim Farrow. Man, that's incredible Batman storytelling. And it's outside the normal realm. People don't, you know, normally go back there and, and, and reconnect with what's going on. But these were all individual mm-hmm. stories with different editors who believe they had different age group audiences. Yet you could still read these individually and you could still as a Batman fan say, wow. And yeah, that's without absolutely. having that continuity every single second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it wows me as you're sometimes too, as you're listing. And I know that you've, you provided a list on Batman on film before too, like the of covers and stories, but even as you mentioned the stories and like instantly Robin dies at dawn, it's like, I, I, I don't remember specifics of the issue, but you bet. I know that cover, you know, it's same thing. Night of the stalker. You bet. I know that cover. And, uh, yeah, just as you as you fire off some of these issues, and yeah, the covers. Um, oh my God, the Robin Dyson really Dawn cover inspired Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. And if you mm-hmm. start to go yeah, from the Supergirl cover, yeah. um, and how many homages and copies of that have gone forward from Marvel to DC to Independence to graphic novels, it's uh, oh my God, what that started! It is so freaking iconic. <laughs> Only Batman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Only Batman. Uh, I guess I need to go around and answer my own question. Uh, I think my favorite part is definitely when the, the car chase um, from the moment that the the criminals, they see Batman's silhouette um, or they see his shadow on the rocks up through the keys, because that I mean, that's such a great you need a great example of Batman. Just look at look at those three pages. Um, and I mean, and it goes way back to criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. I mean, it enforces that it enforces Batman's a creature of the night. They all shoot at him and he's just gone. But then they turn around. There he is with their keys. It's like, wait, how did he how did he make that loop all the way around? Because he's Batman. That's why. Uh, and then the art on top, like all that. I just love like every piece of three pages and every piece. And I'm like, yeah, there's Batman like per- perfection. Batman perfected right there. Um, 
now this is where put your i guess i guess you can answer this michael with a producer's hat on or as or your fan cap on uh your choice um i always like to ask when we uh, cover whatever story if it hasn't been done yet would you like to see this story adapted in animation of course of course okay of course and you know um I leave it up to the brilliant people who mastermind the animation. Mm-hmm. Um, but this and Night of the Reaper, I think, certainly deserve attention. And as I, f- I always felt there was connective tissue there. Um, it would be great if if one day that came to pass. How about you, Bill? Oh, you know me. I, I, <laughs> I think you could take the premise of uh, Joker's Five-Way Revenge and turn mm-hmm. it into an animated film, not even just a short, sure. but yeah, I mean, certainly I'd like to see some of these classic 70 stories get, get some, uh, modern day do, if you will, you know, uh, through animation, because there's a lot of good stuff there, you know, endless amounts. So, yeah. It's, I mean, as I think a lot of us, I'm just sitting here speaking from a fan's perspective because I don't know anything of I eagerly await this Caped Crusader series to just kind of see what's the vibe and tone of that show. How's that going to look? And I mean, I know we have one still that was released a couple years ago and that in that design is like, well, that in its own, I'm kind of like, I wonder if that they'll use Night of the Stalker in some way like that would be great. Um, So I'm like a very, very emphatic yes of. Yeah, give it to me. I'll take it. Sure. Why not? Because as I learned today, sitting here of, well, you kind of got a version of that, the opening of Batman 89. So I guess yeah. like extend it, but put a little twist on it somehow to make it different and animation. I don't, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> give Can it to I me. say I'll one thing, <laughs> one thing, Ron, uh, it, that a couple things that Mr. You said, um, Batman being relentless and then talking about, you know, uh, the opening scene, 89. You know, there was almost, as I was thinking, as we were talking about it, you got there's that in the Batman with the penguin car chase when Batman's chasing him. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, Batman just slowly walks to the car with the flames behind him and and the the sheer terror on the penguin's face seeing him. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And it just reminded me of that. I just wanted to mention it. I don't know. I don't know if there's any connection between between the two, but it's just some of the great things about Batman. You can see in different different sure. uh, mediums and different uh, and different periods of time. Absolutely agree with you. And and in that movie in particular, uh, you had that sequence. You had the opening sequence with Batman where he slowly comes out of the shadows yes. and you hear the footsteps and you see the boots and uh and then relentless 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 and then you know it, it kind of echoes the end result here in um night of the stalker with the uh with the one person who just collapses and says you know please don't hurt me you know mm-hmm. blah 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 um there's there's some parallels you can draw here yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, as I guess as an inch to to wrap up, I want to give the floor to to both of you on like a a final thought on the issue, something you haven't said. If you want to summarize thoughts, feelings, anything at all, uh, final words on Night of the Stalker. You go, Bill. I um, well, uh, thanks for inviting me on. I know this was uh, <laughs> you know, you usually do these one on one, but yes, um. I'm glad you I'm glad the story was was picked. I got to revisit it and then after listening to a lot of uh just the the discussion and and re- reminders like that's that's the opening the Batman 89 things like yeah. that just um make me even appreciate it even more. So, Which I'm slightly embarrassed. I never thought of it until now, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll admit it. You learned something. <laughs> yeah. I've learned this throughout the years you learn something new every time you visit with mr you and you you can always you know i have look i'm a life i've considered myself a teacher because i was Mm -hmm. one and i'm a lifelong learner so i love learning about 
anything Batman and Batman history. So yeah, it was, it's, 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 uh, it's fun. How about you? Any final thoughts, Mr. Yusuf? Yeah. I would love to hear from your viewers, listeners, who now will go back and find it digitally or hard copy and read it. I would love to hear reactions from people in 2023, mm-hmm. Batman readers, Batman fans, as to their perspective on what they get out of the story. Um, I wonder if Batman 89, the Batman, have in any way, shape, or form diluted the impact of the comic book story. Mm. If the audiences have become a little jaded Mm. uh, and it's just not as impactful as it was for me in 74, or if even all of these decades later, this story where Batman does not utter a word and then breaks down at the end, if that still has an emotional impact uh, on Batman fans today. That's fascinating. Yeah. I hope, I hope we, I get some feedback on it because I want, yeah, I want to know too. New readers. Uh, I don't know. Admit it. It's fine. If this, if you've never read it and you're going to read it now. Yeah. Cause that's a great fresh perspective that I'd love to hear. How does this resonate now to new readers you know, compared to people who've been reading comics for decades and stuff. That'd be, that'd be great. Um, I mean, as with Batman, like it's, it's always hard to ask somebody a favorites because how can you, like there's, there's never with Batman, there's too much good stuff to just be like absolute. There's one absolute favorite and it's this. So this is, I think this story and revisiting it is grouped into that, like defining Batman stories. Um, the, I, the word that's I'm going to take away from this conversation is relentless. Uh, a great example of a relentless Batman, mm. Night of the Stalker. Um, no dialogue, just presence. Uh, great example of that. And then a great example at the end, as you've seen this creature of the, of the night in this force, you humanize him and realize Bruce Wayne uh, at the very end, too, which is such a great capper to the story. Uh, and it, and it's a good it's a good gut punch, too. Um, and sometimes, you know, gut punches are okay. <laughs> in this yes. case, that's, that's the only example of where a gut punch is good is when a story really hits you. So um, I don't think both you, is, I mean, Michael, it's, it was a treat, a real pleasure and honor that you came on here to talk, um, talk some Batman comics. I'd, Thanks, I'd said to Bill, I was like, sign me up. I love hearing Michael Uslan film stories, producer stories, Indiana University stories, you know, right here in the Hoosier State. Uh, and I said, do you think he'd be interested to come on and just a Batman comic fan? And we want to talk a little bit about some Batman comics. And so, uh, Bill, a big thank you to, that you uh, hooked us up to make that happen. So if there's anything yep. you want to plug where people can follow you on your on your great postings on Instagram and stuff, plug away, Michael. Yeah, sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my kids have been pestering the hell out of me to get on some of these other things. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> um, I, this is the uh, the snarky curmudgeon part of me. Uh, but, I, but I do have a regular presence on Instagram and Facebook. And I think you guys will agree. A lot of the stuff I post is just a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, especially yes. if you're a Batman comic book movie or yes. animation fan. Um, you'll see some stuff there that hopefully will always bring a smile to your face. And I have very, very hard and fast rules about civility mm-hmm. and um, respecting other people's opinions as to which Batman is their favorite. Uh, we all have our own personal mm-hmm. favorite, one true Batmans that resonate with us. And we need to respect what everyone else's one true Batman might be. Um, my two memoirs are out now, uh, both in audible books and on print and uh, digital. And it is The Boy Who Loved Batman and Batman's Batman um, through Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And the last thing I'll mention is, uh, and hopefully I'll have a lot more to say about this uh, first of the year, um, the Nederlander Organization of New York City is turning my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, into a Broadway play. And it is being fast-tracked. And lots of good things are happening. I I could not be more excited about it. It's the story of my 10-year odyssey, buying the rights to Batman when I was a kid in my 20s, and the 10 years it took us before we were able to get the first movie made in 1989. 
So hopefully it'll be an entertaining and fun story uh, that I hope will inspire a lot of people. And uh, if there's any lesson, it's follow your passion, get up off the fricking couch and be <laughs> proactive about it. Learn how to deal with frustration and make a commitment and persevere, hang on by your fingertips and persevere. And ultimately that's what the story is about. So uh, I'm hoping at this stage of my life and career that this will be part of a legacy for me as to um, why the whole Batman franchise is important on a whole different level. Awesome. Excellent. Bill, follow that up. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> uh, can't. Uh... Batman on film. My there little, you go. <laughs> my little small, uh, yeah. you know, uh, portion of Batman history and, you know, Batman on film history, Batman-on-film.com. 25 years yeah. this year wow. I've done that and Quarter still century. still got I Batman films coming. I rely on it, Bill. It's great yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, as for, I mean, as for the Batman book club, follow on Twitter and Instagram at the Batman BC. Also on Batman on film, Bill posts these episodes generously on Batman on films. So you can find it there as well. Uh, and I mean, if you want to help support the show and you don't want to, uh, Spend any money at all. It's 100% A-OK. The easiest, quickest, and most impactful thing you can do is leave a rate and review on any podcast provider that you use. Uh, the more reviews the show gets, the more it helps spread the word. And I mean, as we all know, as Ra's al said in Batman Begins, the word is panic. So for Michael Euslin and Bill Jet Ramey, I am Ryan Lauer. And until next time, read more Batman comics. <laughs>